Well, for those of you who are fanning, the air conditioner is on 69. It is kicking on. For those of you who are bundled up, um, I don't know what else to do. I can tell you, if you don't understand the HVAC system in Trinity, I'll help you. If you're a hot-natured person, you need to sit in the middle. If you're a cold-natured person, you need to sit against the walls because the, the fans blow out here and they miss the sides. So just thought I would share that piece of building information with you and hope it helps. Today is an interesting message. It's often a hard one to preach, but very necessary. Living with a spear thrower. I remember in my last church, a story was told to me by a lady who was in our service, in our assembly, and it was a story about a horrible marriage that she had. She said she became very terrified of her husband. He began to take on some weird behavior. She didn't know really what to do. He began to show signs of abuse and so forth, and she was so felt so trapped that she couldn't get out. Now let me stop here and just simply say, if you are being abused, you need to get help immediately. This, this message today is under no obligation to say that if you're being abused or you're being mistreated physically, you need to go seek help with the authorities. But this particular lady was being terribly chased and stalked by her husband. One evening she came home and it escalated to such a point that he lured her down in the basement, knocked her out, tied her hands, and rolled her in a carpet, loaded her in the back of his pickup truck, and took her to a shallow grave that he had dug for her. She began to explain how he had tied her hands and so forth and she eventually, because a neighbor saw the commotion of him loading her in the back of his vehicle, she called someone and someone ended up intervening and saved this woman's life or she would have died in a grave rolled up in a piece of carpet. I remember her telling me, I never imagined that he could turn from the man I married into the man who wanted to bury me. Now, by the way, as a pastor, sometimes you hear things. And by the way, she allowed me to share her story, so I'm not breaking a confidence. But as a pastor, you hear things that rattle you to the core. And I remember after she told her story, I went home and I tried to sleep that night. I could not sleep. I just laid there thinking to myself, how in the world could somebody... I knew her father, her mother. I talked to them, asked them how they processed this. Eventually, this man, her, her husband, he went to jail, obviously, and started serving time in prison, and he died there. She told me that when she went to his funeral, she was so paranoid of him, she made sure no one was around her, and she went up and pinched his dead body to make sure he wouldn't move. Now, I laughed with her too, but he was dead. She eventually remarried. She has a great marriage now. She's a wonderful lady. But she was living with a spear thrower. Now the question becomes, what happens to make this change and what do you do about it? So that's what I want to focus on this morning. And I actually want you to turn in 1 Samuel chapter 18. And I'm going to read the first course that caused this man named Saul to change. Now as you know in the past messages... He disobeyed God, and God confronted him through the prophet Samuel and said, You have disobeyed me. Saul, of course, began to make all kinds of excuses and explain how he had obeyed God partially. It wasn't his fault. It was the people's fault. And the next thing you know in chapter 16, God took away the spirit of blessing on Saul and gave him an evil spirit. Now, I've explained to you theology before and some things about that, but the point is... If we want to sin in life and we really want to enjoy it, there is a danger in that because sometimes God will allow you to do that. And when sin becomes fun, then you can know that you're really in trouble. Especially as a believer, if we can sin and actually enjoy it and we get past the grieving part of it, 
and we're just lavishing in our sin and it's such a joy, you better watch out. You better watch out. When the conviction leaves, that's a bad sign. This man named Saul had a major issue in his life, and that is that he was eaten by jealousy. Wes, if you can get me my slide, and it may be me here that's not working, get me past, yeah, there you go. Proverbs 14.30 reads this, A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Envy rots the bones. I'm in 1 Samuel chapter 18, and I'm going to read right down in verse 6. I'll summarize here for time's sake, and hopefully you read this passage. But as they were coming home, meaning David and the warriors, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul, with tambourines, songs of joy, and musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Now, let me just point out a couple of obvious things. If you remember, when Saul initially came in, the people were singing to Saul. He hid behind the baggage. Now David comes back, he's already defeated Goliath, he went out and defeated the Philistines, and if you want to see jealousy rage up in a man, just let women start praising someone else. If you were ever in high school and you were ever on a football team and you ever watched boys and girls, and by the way, this is just nature, how it interacts, and you watch a bunch of girls or maybe the cheerleaders brag over one star player, you can just sit back and you can watch in the, in the huddle or in the locker room the other guys who think that they should be that star player are eaten alive. And they began to talk and then they began to talk about how they're going to get rid of this guy and what they should do and so forth. And this is kind of what happened. Now notice in the text, because I want to show this to you, the women came out to meet King Saul. And they were actually singing to King Saul. And as a matter of fact, they mentioned his name first. Saul has killed his thousands. Now, if they had stopped the song at that point, that would have just ended it all. Saul has killed his thousands. But then they added one line, and it only took one line, by the way, and this ate at Saul like a cancer. And David his ten thousands. Now, some Hebrew scholars say that this is just Hebrew parallelism, and basically it was equating the same kill to both. You know, Saul his thousands, and David both his thousands, and Saul his ten thousands, and David his ten thousands. I'm not sure that's accurate. I think they were actually pointing to David because he was more of a victorious warrior than Saul, and as a result of that, Saul became insanely jealous. Now remember, you can be gifted by God and talented, and while all of these talents are working in your life, you can be eaten alive with sin. I listed in a previous message the advantages Saul had. He was gifted as a prophet. He was handsome. He had humility. He had success in battles. But he didn't live up to his gifting because he allowed jealousy and envy to eat him alive. Now, Saul was a man who was insecure and he could not stand when David received any type of praise from someone else. He became angry when someone else was credited with what he thought he alone should have. And this lodged deep in his heart. Notice in verse 9, the text says, and he, from that day forward, he kept an eye on David. He kept an eye on him. He was ruled by fear in verse 15, and he used his own family even to manipulate circumstances to try to further his agenda. In other words, he promised his daughters to David, but he allowed another person to actually marry. Now, if you read this story, which I'm not going to take 20 minutes to do, but here's what happened. After this day, Saul kept watching David and thought, I'm going to snare him any way I can. 
He told David, if you'll go out and kill 100 Philistines and bring back the proof by circumcising them after they're dead. I won't get into that. It was a war strategy, by the way. You can use your imagination. You bring back 100 Philistine foreskins and I'll give you my oldest daughter. So David says, you know, all the soldiers say, what a deal, David, you'll have no problem. And he breaks out in one of the passages, who am I? By the way, Casting Crowns made a song out of that. Who am I? That the Lord of all the earth. David said, who am I to be one of the king's son-in-laws? But he took up the challenge and he went out and instead of David killing a hundred Philistines, he killed how many? Two hundred. And he brought back all the evidence. There it lay in front of Saul as they counted them out. Instead of Saul giving his oldest daughter to David, he pulled another man and said, you're not marrying her. She's going to marry him. Now, can you imagine that? On your wedding day, you're getting ready to marry someone. You've made plans, preparation. You've actually loved them, and now all of a sudden they're jerked out of your hands by a frantic father who's using his own children as a manipulation tool to stroke his own pride and ego. And then what does Saul do? But he promises David his second daughter, Michael. By the way, the servants there said, by the way, did you know your daughter Michael is in love with David? And Saul said, oh, good. Now I'll use her as a snare for him. So he gives David a challenge, and then David ends up marrying Michael. And if you read the story, you know, David even tries to kill, or Saul tries to kill David in the home of his own daughter. She wanting to save his life, takes an idol and sticks it in her bed and ends up telling a lie, saying that David is sick in the bed. So the messengers go back and tell Saul, David is sick in your daughter's bed. And Saul said, bring him in his sick bed so I can kill him. You see what a maniac this man has turned into. Now, for those of us who had COVID and were in the sick bed, you're at your most weakest point, aren't you? There's no fight in you. Can you imagine somebody wanting to take advantage of you while you're like that? This is the kind of man he was. No mercy. How can a man turn from some type of a humble man into this monster? Well, as we know, the evil spirit from God was certainly helping him. Several occasions when David came into Saul's presence, he was actually brought there to play a harp. What happened was, Saul would allow him to play the harp and then all of a sudden a spirit of rage would come over him and he tried to pin David to the wall twice by throwing a spear at him right at his head. And he escaped. Notice verse 8. I'm going to read this little section. There was war again. David went out and fought the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. As he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre. Not, not the L-I-A-R, but the L-Y-R-E, like a stringed instrument. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear, but he eluded Saul, so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Now, I read this because... This is the second mention of the evil spirit that comes upon him. The first is in chapter 16. But I'm sharing this with you to let you know that it's almost like God is instigating this evil to arise in Saul so that David is actually the one in the crosshairs. Now, our theology may not line up here. Sometimes we may say, no, wait a minute, that's just not fair of God. And Why would God do something like that? Let me tell you something, folks. Sometimes, and this is the most mysterious thing about our God, Our God is unpredictable. He doesn't do things like we think He should do. You see, we have this American concept of God that if we do this certain thing and we live this certain way, then God will always act this way. Have you discovered yet in your Christian life that is just not how the God of the Bible responds? I mean, sometimes you can do everything that God tells you to do and trouble still comes in your life. 
You can be a godly parent to your children. You can do everything that you can. And you can still raise a cane. They can still turn out to be a rebel and cause great problem. And you did everything that you could. Sometimes things are just out of our explanation. And in this particular case, God allowed Saul to rage and even to attack David, but he did not allow him to take his life. Now, as we begin thinking about it, and I want to get through this, how do you identify a spear thrower? How do you identify them? How do you recognize a spear thrower? I'll let you do it, Wes, and then I'll take over from there. I listed the list here, and here they are, okay? And I just want to go through them quickly. Number one, a spear thrower acts like he loves others, but he really only loves himself. Now, we could use a psychological term here. Some people call this a narcissist. Uh, anyway, this is a sinner that only cares about themselves. And Saul was this person. They act like they love others, but really, they only do that because they love themselves. Now, if you've ever met someone like this, they're kind to you, they're nice to you, they lure you to do something, and then after you find out the only reason they did that is because they had a hidden agenda to try to advance their, their life or their way or something like that. This is the way Saul was. Bring David in and let him sing to me that I might feel better. David comes in and sings, and what does Saul do? Saul gets mad and ter- takes a spear and push, tries to stick him to the wall because he was playing a solo for him. I mean, just a madman. Second, he had a spirit of entitlement. Now, what does this mean? Well, if we read back in 15 and 16, Saul had already lost the kingdom. As a matter of fact, Samuel went to Saul and said, you have sinned such an egregious sin. God has taken the kingdom from you and he's given it to a man with a heart like his. Now, instead of Saul saying... Samuel, I have sinned away my anointing as a king. I should step away as a king. And and you know what? Let God choose the man that he wants to choose, and I will follow that man. Instead of Saul saying that, what did he do? He gripped onto the kingdom until the whites of his knuckles were showing. And he wasn't going to let it go. And here's the reason even though he knew because God sent his prophet and said the kingdom is gone, Saul believed the kingdom was his and not God's. He had such a sense of entitlement that he thought to himself, there is no way God's going to take this from me because it's mine, I've worked for it, I'm going to... And so he's going to kill He's going to manipulate. He's going to do everything he can to hold on to it. And if you read the rest of this story, which I don't have time to get into, David flees for his life, runs to Samuel, then ends up going to another priest. And while he's on the run, fleeing for his own life, he asks the priest for some bread out of the, out of the temple, the tabernacle, and he gives him a piece of bread and he gives him a sword. And there's a man there whose name is Doeg. Now, can't you imagine that? If you ever ran into a man named Doeg, you don't trust him. He was an Edomite. He, he was sitting there listening to the conversation. And Saul was having a pity party one day and got all these warriors out. And Saul went, nobody loves me. Who, who gave you what I could give you? What other, what other king would give you all these great treasures and all of these things and give you your pomegranate tree? but nobody tells me what's going on. He begins to just guilt through his own pity. Nobody says a word. Everybody's quiet except this one man named Doeg. I'll tell you, king, I heard David down talking to the priest. He gave him some bread and a sword. Saul turned around in his wrath. Do you know what Saul did? He summoned every priest brought them up, put them in front of him, and demanded that they all be executed. Can you imagine this? Accused him, and the the priest had no clue what was going on. He said, who is like your servant David? What are you doing? What did Saul do? He, He said, kill him. His own men wouldn't even take their life. So he looked at 
Mr. Doeg and said, you're the one that said it, you kill them. And he went out there and killed them all. One man escaped with his life. This, he was a madman. He was entitled so he would do whatever he had to. He also blamed other people for his own mistakes. We saw this back in the other chapter when the bleeding of the sheep came forth. The people made me do it. Every time Saul runs into an issue, he blames others. By the way, this is a typical narcissist. They will never take responsibility on their own. Now, by the way, let me just pause for a moment. Because sometimes we like to categorize people and say, well, you're either a full narcissist or you're not. And perhaps I should wait till I'm at the end of this to say it, but I'm going to say it now lest I forget it. Every one of us have this tendency in our life. So let's be very careful here about only painting someone else in our mind going, oh, I know exactly who he's talking about. Because if we are not very cautious, we can behave in such a way that we have some of these tendencies. But, on to number three, blames other people. Number four, manipulative. I've already mentioned this. He used his daughters as bait for David so that they would be killed by someone else. You can read this in verse 17 and 25. He even tried to manipulate David's best friends. Chapter 19, verse 1. Saul spoke to Jonathan, his own son, and to all his servants. And what did he tell them? Can you imagine this? That they should kill David. But Jonathan's son, Saul's son, delighted so much in David and became his best friend. So here's a man that's really just on a binge for his own way. Another characteristic is he always lives by their own set of rules. Now, this is an interesting way to peg a spear thrower. What do we mean by this? Well, Saul promised not to kill David after his son reminded him of David's loyalty. Look in chapter 19, verses 4 and following. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you. And because his deeds have brought good to you, for he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. Notice this. You saw it, Dad, and you rejoiced. Why then would you sin against innocent blood by killing David without a cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. And Saul swore an oath, As the Lord lives... He shall not be put to death. So Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. Look down in verse 8. Then there was war again. After it happened, verse 9, a harmful spirit came upon him. And I read this earlier, verse 10. Saul sought to pin David to the wall. Look at this man. I swear before God in heaven that David shall live. And then he turns around and has a bad day, and what happens? He tries to take his life. He wants to live by his own rules as long as he's the one making them and he can decide when he wants to break them. Another instance of this, earlier in 1 Samuel, what did Saul do? He rid the land of all the witches. Now what was a witch back then? A witch was someone who you could go to and ask them about the future. What's going to happen here? What's... What's going to happen here? How do we do this? So God, back in Deuteronomy, told the nation of Israel, I am the only one who you are to consult or listen to about the future. Not a witch, not someone who speaks with the dead, only me. And so he goes and he gets rid of all the witches in the land. Guess what happens? Right after this point, he is not talked to anymore by Samuel. He has no way to go and be confronted by God. He's been left. He has this evil spirit tormenting him. What does Saul do at the end of his life? The man who ridded all the witches from the land did what? He went and sought a witch for counsel. Now, by the way, if you, haven't, when it, if you didn't read ahead, God does something very strange at the end of 1 Samuel. And some people will say, well, that really wasn't Samuel that God allowed to come up. I, I would differ. 
I think that was what was so startling to Saul and the witch, that the fact that God allowed Samuel to speak to Saul and say, you should have listened to what I told you to start with. (gasps) But he was living by his own set of rules. And then this one was very interesting about a person with this type of characteristic. They can feel their own pain, but they can never feel the pain of someone else. Have you ever met someone like this? It's interesting. You'll you'll hear a tragedy. Someone will have a tragedy happen in their life. And someone can even be listening to them. However... They always have a tragedy that's ten times worse and they can't even understand what you're going through. In this particular instance, Saul constantly broke his oaths, but when something happened to him, he couldn't stand it. Look down in chapter 19, verse 17. This is the story where his daughter told him uh, that David was in his sick bed. So after Saul found out that she had put an idol there, Saul brought his daughter, and he said to Michael, Why have you deceived me? And let my enemy go so that he's escaped. He was furious. And Michael answered, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Saul's rage breaks out now. He's furious. So, notice this, folks. He could lie and manipulate to other people, but when someone did it to him, he couldn't handle it. Very, very interesting. You know, oftentimes we hear people say, and I just want to pause here because I I really think this is important. Do you know that it is so easy in our human nature to deceive ourselves about who we really are? You know, the older you get and the more you know God and the more you know His Word, the scarier we become when we look in the mirror. Now, this was confirmed to me by an older man. I I assumed when I was a younger Christian and a new pastor in the ministry that the closer I walked with Jesus, you know, the greater things would be and I would finally get to this glory cloud when I got older in my life and every day with Jesus is sweeter. And, And that's true. Please don't get me wrong. But there's also another side to that. And that is, the closer we get to the light, the more we see the imperfections in the product. I was with a body man a while back, and he was looking at a used car. And he said, oh my goodness, that car's tore all to pieces. I looked at it, and I said, what are you talking about? It looks great to me. He had a light, and he walked over to the side of that car and stuck it up and rolled it up and down the side. He said, thing's full of Bondo. This has been taken off and replaced. I was sitting back looking at it. He was giving me a lesson. He said, you've got to put the light close to it before you see the imperfection. And I thought, boy, what a preaching illustration. I mean, the closer you get to the light and you begin looking at them, you start seeing all these imperfections in our life. And we think to ourselves, Lord, how can you even love someone like me? I mean, wow, this is in my heart. This comes to my mind. I get when I get when when I don't get my way, I want to do this. Where is this coming from, Lord? I mean, rid this evil man. And then you turn to Romans chapter 8 and you understand why Paul can say, "Who shall deliver me from this body of death?" I thank God for Jesus Christ my Lord. I mean, do you look forward to the day of glorification when your sin nature is taken and you don't have those propensities anymore? I mean, I think that's what happens in the Christian life. But the point is, all of these things, these, these issues, if you want to call it that, are, are seated in the heart of every human being. Now, there's a man named Gene Edwards, and he wrote a little book to pastors about three kings. I've quoted it before. But listen to what he says about the life of Saul and let it sink. Because this this hits home. People pray for power and God oftentimes gives it to unworthy vessels. Why? The answer is both simple and shocking. 
He sometimes gives unworthy vessels a greater portion of power so that others will eventually see the true state of internal nakedness within that individual. Now, in case you missed that, why does God sometimes give people a promotion in your company that is wicked, nasty, and selfish, and not you? Gene Edwards says, so that sometimes they will be exposed and people will see who they are. The person can be living in the grossest of sin and the outer gift will still be working perfectly. What does this world need, he asks? More gifted men and women? More who are outwardly empowered? No, he says. Rather, what we need are individuals who are broken and inwardly transformed. Keep in mind that some who have been given the very power of God have raised armies, defeated the enemy, brought forth mighty works of God, preached and prophesied with unparalleled power and eloquence, and then thrown spears, hated others, attacked others, plotted to kill, prophesied naked, and consulted witches. Very interesting, isn't it? Saul started out well, but he didn't finish well. And that is down inside every human heart. Now, the interesting part of this is what do we do with that? What, what, do, what do you do with that? I mean, we know it's there. We know there's a problem. So how do we handle it? And Wes, sorry, old buddy. Here is a quote, a statement I want you to ponder. The ability to see ourselves as others see us and as God sees us is actually a divine gift. Have you ever heard anybody make this statement? I don't care what anybody thinks about me. And then they'll follow it up. Well, Push the brake pedal just a little. I'll let you hang on to that to an extent, but push it just a little. Do you know how unwise it is for us to listen to the counsel of other people when they try to speak truth into our life? If we get ourselves like Saul, where we're at such a place where we, we don't care and don't want anybody speaking truth into our life, that is what turns us into the bad side of Saul. Every parent goes through this with kids. When they get older, you try to talk to your children, you try to speak to I don't want to hear it. Shh, I, I don't want to, you know. And you, you hear parents and they talk, I know, I know. And you go through that and then you realize, ooh, I mean, that's when as a parent you really start praying, oh God, I realize I have reached my parental boundary. I now know that I can't pick them up and put them in the crib and change their diaper because they are their own individual now. And, and God, I am so dependent upon you to work in and change their heart that I'm crying out to you as their dad, their mom, their aunt. I'm begging you, God, to intervene. And, and we, we begin to do that. And it's interesting to watch God work. But that's a dangerous place when we won't allow someone to speak into our life. And it's also another dangerous place when we think that we have arrived at a certain spiritual point that there is zero sin in our life. I mean, that is like, you know, danger zone. We went and watched the great movie Top Gun Maverick. I don't know if you've been to see it yet, but... It was wonderful, but when they got to a certain point and the cockpit begins to, it's getting ready to explode and shut down. I mean, this is, this is the warning light in the Christian life when we don't ever see any wrong in our life. It's always someone else. You know, if you ever come for, for counseling or whatever, a wise counselor will ask you this question. Is this your problem? Is this... His problem or her problem, or is it both of your problems? Now, if you're ever asked that question, you better think about it. 
If you ever go into a counselor and you say this, well, it's her problem, I can tell you right now, or it's his problem, and you don't own any of it yourself, here's a little counseling tip that you're telling the counselor. You've got some soul in you. Because we all have that in us. Now, quickly, what are some lessons? Lessons that we learn when we encounter a spear thrower. Okay, these are some practical things in life I hope help you. But here are some lessons that we learn. When you're dealing with a spear thrower, you've got to see this. If you don't, you're going to be in utter frustration. Understand that sin blinds people to their faults. When you are dealing with a, with a spear thrower, somebody like the characteristics that we've just described, listen to me, folks, they cannot see what their wrong is. And when you try to explain it to them or you try to expose them for that, do not be shocked when they go off on you or they vent and rage or their wrath goes on you. They can't see it. And there's a message about Proverbs that talks about, you know, don't answer a fool according to his folly lest you look like him. It turns right back around and says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. That is not a contradiction. It's basically telling you as a hearer, you're going to have to determine what kind of person you're listening to. Is this a person who, if you answer them and give them counsel, they're going to actually take it and use it? Or is this a person that you give them counsel, they're going to fight and attack you? You're going to look just like them. So you have to be able to walk this balance. But when you're dealing with a spear thrower, speaking wisdom into their life is probably not too effective. Okay? Prayer is the best answer. Number two, when a spear is thrown at you, the worst thing you can ever do is throw it back. You've heard the saying that a harsh word stirs up anger, but a soft word does what? It can, it can do that, turn away wrath, and in another place, a soft word breaks a bone. If you, if you, if we, let me put myself in there, okay? If we think that we can deal with spear throwers with the same vengeance that they're pouring out on us, the only thing you're going to do is get into a spear throwing contest. It is not going to work. It's just not going to work. So, when a spear is thrown... Don't throw it back. Let it stick in the wall and move out of the way. Just move. Which leads to point number three. When you are sinned against, do not sin back. And here's why. Because perhaps God has a larger purpose in wrongdoing. Perhaps He's even allowing you to be the bullseye of someone's wrath. Now, remember back to the first part of my message. I'm not talking about you being physically abused. I'm not talking about laws being done and broken against you. Get help. I'm talking about if you're being attacked in the sense of what we're discussing here. Back in this day, David did not have the Christiansburg Police Department to go to. The only place David had was one of two things. A cave, somewhere to run, or he had to attack him back. And if you know the story, when Saul went into a cave, David had two chances to kill him. And all of these men were saying, God, look here, David, you've been praying for the will of God. Here he is in the cave, bent over in the dark, and you're right behind him. God has delivered him into your hand. And probably 95 preachers out of 100 would have said, that is the will of God. Take it. And David went up and began to do it and became convicted and cut off a piece of his robe. Saul walked out and then David felt guilty. Stepped out the door and said, What are you doing to me, Saul? I could have killed you. If I wanted to kill you, I'd have taken your life. Why are you chasing me like a dog? Oh, I'm sorry, David. I shouldn't do that. Saul turned around. What did he do? Seen his whole army back after him again. He was a madman. But God had a larger purpose in allowing this. What do we do? What do we do? Well, sometimes we begin to ask this question, Lord, why have you allowed this person to be left in my life? Why? 
I can remember one time working in a certain place, and I won't say the name because it happened to be right here in town, and I got put on a shift of a very mean, evil man. He, he fit the category here perfect. And he began to go after a person on our shift because he didn't like them. And I mean he went after them, making their life absolutely miserable. Well, of course, the upper administration doesn't know what happens down in the workforce. You all hear me here. I mean, people understand this. Down on the ground level where people are working and making things go and they're they're there 8 to 5 or 11 to 7 or whatever that shift is. They're down there working like bees. The administration's up here. They don't hear all the drama and the fuss that's going on, but every administrator knows that's happening. But you're down there punching the clock, trying to live your life right, trying to be a good worker, going the extra mile. And other people are lazy and they're not doing their job and this one likes that one and they give you the extra work. And I mean, it's, this happens everywhere. Schools, police departments, uh, chain stores, anywhere you can imagine this happens, okay? It's just part of life. Well, this particular man began to turn the grind of misery down on this person. And I was sitting there watching it. I became part of watching this happen. I didn't know what to say. I was like, my gracious. I wasn't living for the Lord then, so I'm not going to be spiritual. I was, I was far from God. But I watched this unfold, and the next thing you know, this man went on for a year or more, and he made a fatal mistake one day. And he did something where he crossed the line. That one foolish mistake that he made cost him his job and his career. And the other man who ended up being persecuted and taken advantage of ultimately took his place. And as I began to see that, that led me to the fourth point, and that was this. Allow God to take the vengeance upon those who wrong you you use wisdom, not vengeance. God will handle the vengeance. Romans chapter 12, verse 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, here's our problem, and this is a whole other sermon. God promises, I will repay. The problem is, when we don't see it in our timetable, we get, what? Anxious. And we begin to tell God, God, I don't think you're up there. I mean, God, if, if you were righteous and you were holy like you say you are, and you know this person's done wrong to me, you've let this go and go and go, and they're, they're being blessed and they're prospering, and you haven't done one thing, God. Can I remind you of the text again? Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Now, notice he didn't say never protect yourselves. He said never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I might. I may. Mm -mm. I will repay says the Lord. Now, when will God repay? What if another believer does you wrong? There is, a, there is a time appointed for every Christian. You all hear me closely. Every Christian who has been saved from the day of Pentecost to the rapture, it's called the judgment seat of Christ. The Bema seat. There is a day appointed where every Christian, Paul says Romans 14, 10, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, to receive what they have done in the body, whether good or bad. Now, if a believer fails to deal with issues in their life here, Jesus will deal with them. Do you think that he's going to allow one believer to do another one wrong and go into eternity and that never be resolved? See, there was two sides to a Bema seat. One side was where they dealt with problems. And they, a judgment was made on right and wrong and restoration. And another side was rewards. This should make every Christian rethink about their life. 
Don't cheat, lie, and steal here in this life because one day it's going to cost you your rewards. And I heard a man tell a story one time. He said, do you think that God's going to allow a husband to run off with some young girl, even if he's a Christian, and go live on the beach the rest of his life in nothing but luxury and leave the mom there to take care of the kids? And Jesus is never going to make that right? He said, don't fool yourself. Eternity is long. Life is short. There's another judgment called the great white throne judgment. This happens at the end of the thousand year rule and reign of Jesus when all unrighteous dead, unsaved people are resurrected and they are given a body. Did you hear me? Every one of them are given a body. From unrighteous Cain all the way to the end of the millennial kingdom, they will be raised to stand in a body and every person that's unsaved who has ever wronged and whatever they've done, they will be judged according to their works. Now, I just share that with you to say when God says, I will repay, He will repay. And part of living by faith is waiting and believing that God is going to do what He said He's going to do when He's going to do it. Sometimes he lets us see, sometimes he makes us wait. But allow God to take vengeance. And number five, and this one is important. Learn to forgive because what we do not forgive, we pass on. Now this one is tough. Because it gets down into the marrow of our bones. When someone does us wrong, we have one of two options. Either we, in time, choose to turn them over to God and say, Lord, I am turning them over to your vengeance and I'm trusting you to do that, but I will no longer be held captive by their ill toward me. I am releasing them to you and they will not dominate my life. I will no longer be in bondage to them. I'm going to release that. I'm going to turn that over to you and their repentance or their judgment is is laid upon your shoulders. You're God and I'm not. Vengeance is yours. You will repay you. That's yours, Father. I'm turning it over to you. And I'm going to choose to forgive because... Whatever I don't forgive in my life, in my bitterness and in my anger and in the way I live my life and the way I treat my family, you know what I'm going to do? I'm I'm going to do nothing but pass that bondage on. And as, as a parent, you know, we have children. And you all know this is true. You have a bad day and you come home and what do you do? Kick the dog. Walk in the house, grouchy, take it out on your wife and mean to the kid. I mean, you know, hopefully you don't do that, but sometimes we all have bad days. But what we don't forgive, we will pass on. And the scariest thing that you'll ever see is when the actions of your children reflect your behavior, especially if it's in the area of unforgiveness. Imagine having a father come in and talk to you and say, you know... I didn't realize this till later in life. I, sta- I stood in front of my children and I said, look at that guy. He did this to me and that to me and I'll never... Blah, blah, blah. And he did that his whole life and when his kids grew up and somebody did them wrong. Imagine him now saying that I watched my children mirror my life and now they treat other people just like I did. So when we hear that, we say, we better learn to forgive because what we don't, we will pass on. Now, did David forgive Saul? Well, if you read the last point, you know he did. Saul hunted David as a, like a dog to the end of his life. But when Saul was killed, and by the way, isn't it interesting that he was killed by someone from the Amalekites who he didn't destroy completely? He was mortally wounded. He lay there on his sword. 
And then there's this issue about does this guy kill him or not? I don't know that that's the point. The point is he died. David comes to the throne. Now David has a choice. They nailed Saul and Jonathan's body to a wall in a neighboring town. David sent in warriors. They went and took them down, brought them back, buried them. Now David has a choice to stand up and go, let me tell you about Saul. He started off well, but he was a bum. May no king ever be like that. No, that's not what David... David sang a song and a hymn of praise. You should read it in 2 Samuel 1. And he pointed out nothing but the good side of that family. And now I share that with you to say, in spite of all David's flaws, I know he did with Bathsheba. I know he killed Uriah. I know David was a rat in some ways. But this is just a little reflection why God could say David was a man after my own heart. He could lay this down. And by the way, David paid for his sins. He paid for them. But he was a man after God's heart. Are we? I mean, what, what about this hits your life? What is it that we need to lay down? And as you think about this, you think about nobody else but Jesus, right? I mean, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. He gave vengeance to God. He humbled himself, became the form of a servant. He emptied himself, submitted himself to God. He let people treat him wrong because he knew that God would make things right. Those of us who know Christ as our Savior, we've believed on him for eternal life. And I'm assuming that's 90 nine to a hundred percent of the people I'm speaking to, we can trust our God to take vengeance on those who do us wrong. We just have to be able to turn it over to Him. He will do that. Will you turn it over? Father, this morning I pray for the hearts of your people. And I pray that whatever is in our life that is bogging us down, that we want vengeance for, that in this quiet moment we will turn it over to you. So Father, as your Spirit searches our hearts and we begin picturing people in our own mind who have done us wrong, perhaps taken advantage of us, and their wrongdoing is lodged in our heart and in some way we are in bondage to them because we think about it. We dwell on it. It eats us alive in the quietness of our soul. We may not say a word to anybody about it, but you know it's there and we know it's there. If you've brought that issue, that person, to our heart and our mind this morning, you want us to turn that loose. So I pray that everyone here that has that experience in their life right now will let it go. Entrust it to you. So hear our prayer, O God. And we do trust you. And we do it in Jesus' name. Amen.